This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to the Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. Okay, you are here with the Church Boys, and I'm here today with Dr. Kent Brantley and Amber Brantley to talk about uh, your amazing story, which so many of us know and we're aware of. It was last year that, um, Dr., you survived Ebola, which it's almost unbelievable to say those words because it's, it's one of those things, and personally for me, Ebola terrifies me. It's like you hear about diseases, and I don't know, I'm not a medical professional, but rabies, Ebola, you know, some of these diseases are so terrifying, right? And, um, you know, and, and I think everybody sort of panicked. It was one of those things where the media was covering it, and we knew there were Americans, and the unfortunate part is Americans were focusing more on it because I think there were Americans that it was impacting, right? right. And so it was brought home. It wasn't this distant and it's sort of sad that that's how we sometimes think about things, but it wasn't this distant thing happening. It was affecting people um, in communities around the country, including you. And so I guess the, the first place that I wanted to start is, you know, we, we've talked a lot about sort of your story as of last year, but there's been almost 12 months now, right, have passed um, after recovering, after surviving. What have, for both of you, what have those 12 months been like? told someone earlier it's been very surreal and very normal at times you know we we still have our two young children at home we we do normal family stuff and then there are other moments when it strikes you that life is so totally different than it was 12 months ago and we we think back about the work we were doing in Liberia living on the beach working in the hospital taking care of sick people and now here we are sitting talking to you today it's just totally different. You could have never expected, I would imagine, before all of this happened, that a year from before you got sick, this is where you would be and what would be happening and what you'd be discussing, I would imagine. No, a a year ago, (laughs) looking at now, we would be saying, okay, we're about to complete our two years in Liberia. Where's our next move to? Yeah. I guess that's not so different from the position we're in now. Yeah, about that, so... (laughs) Well, it's, you know, and I think it's one of those, I think it's one of those things, too, where it's like, it's such an experience that so many people can't necessarily relate to or understand that people want to know, they want to understand, and so few people have survived, you know, that that the media has covered, that it's one of the, it's just one of those topics, because people are afraid of it, right? But then I think what's so interesting about the two of you is that the whole faith element, which our audience really was fascinated by, you know, what role has faith played in your lives in the past year in particular after all of this? And then I want to talk about getting through it with faith. This past year, you know, somebody asked me, do you think your faith saved you? Do you think it was your faith that carried you through this, that actually helped you survive? And when I look at it, I, I really think in a very real way. It was my faith that got me Ebola. It was my faith that put me in a position where I contracted this disease. And that, when you look at it through that lens, I think it changes this last 12 months as we wrestle with, okay, how how are we going to be faithful now? We were, we moved to Liberia to be faithful. We went through this experience. Now on this side of it, how what does it look like for us to be faithful in our lives in these current circumstances? And so we've wrestled with that over the last 
11 or 12 months of we're not in the position we expected to be in a year ago. So, so how do we live out our, our convictions now? And what, what brought you guys to Liberia? I want to just backtrack a little bit on this. You know, what was the backstory of how you know, God brought you there and how that happened? Well, we, what is, we both shared a, a yeah. calling to medical mission work. Amber's a nurse, I'm a doctor, and, and when we got married, that was our goal all along, was to, to become medical missionaries, to go work in a difficult place taking care of, of people who are experiencing great suffering. We got to Liberia specifically because we met the people from Samaritan's Purse and we learned about the World Medical Mission post-residency program. And they have this two-year program for physicians immediately out of their training who feel called to a career in medical missions. And they would pair us with a mentor on the field to help us have an easier transition over that first two years from life as a resident physician in the U.S. to life as a medical missionary. And we were accepted into that program and placed in Liberia with a mentor there to, to help us get started in our career on the mission field. What was the situation with Ebola at that time? You know, what was, was there anything happening? Was there... There was no situation with Ebola in West Africa at that time. Ever. This was October of 2013. Ebola was a disease of East and Central Africa and it had never been known to exist in West Africa. So it wasn't a fear going into it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like you knew, okay, I'm going into a situation where I'm going to be dealing with Ebola per se. We never knew no. that we would be dealing with Ebola, but there were plenty of other diseases that nobody yeah. wants to get, diseases yeah. that don't have cures or that have high mortality rates. You know, that's just a, a fact of life for the majority of people in the world to live in conditions where they're at risk of exposure to, to these sorts of things. Ebola was not on the radar, but... A few months later, if, it was, right? If, I it, mean, if it had been, you know, if, if we had been moving to Congo instead of Liberia, it still, it wouldn't have been a major factor to say, right, oh, Ebola right. exists in that area, we probably shouldn't go. You were already Just, going into a tough situation regardless, right? right? So, and it's another level of tough when... So, so when Ebola start, when this started happening, what were you guys thinking? I mean, what's going through your heads as you're thinking, we're here now, and there's a much, e it's already bad, you know, there's already a lot we're doing, and now we're dealing with this. What's sort of going through your head throughout that process? When it first came from, when it first crossed into the border in Liberia, it was in March of 2013. 14. 14, sorry. And um, at that time, Smyrna's Purse decided to evacuate their dependents and spouses and so the kids and I left Kent in March but then nothing came of it that that lady got sick but it hadn't it didn't spread and erupt like we saw later in the summer so we were it was Ebola free we could go home again um, until it came back in June and at that time Samaritan's Purse had engaged in the fight and had prepared and Elwell Hospital had trained all of their staff and physicians and uh, in the proper protective techniques. So we didn't feel like we had to, we didn't need to leave again. Kent felt confident that he could do that work and still 
come home to us at the end of the day. And so we stayed, the kids and I stayed there and supported him through that. And it was June and July last summer were really tough times. So in June and July, were you still, were you in Liberia still then at that point? Okay. Yes. So take me through then, um, I know you've talked about this before, but I want to just hear from you, sort of when you realized, okay, I might have been, I might be sick. You know, what, take me through that process, and then I want to know from you what that was like. Because I know it's like the shock of finding out, and then, it's the, and then it's the shock of you, oh my gosh, what comes next? So take me through that process for you. So July 20th was a Sunday. I took Amber and the kids to the airport, not to be evacuated, but because they were going back to America for a family wedding. And I was supposed to follow them about seven or ten days later. So I dropped them off and I went back to work and we were moving into the new Ebola treatment unit. We had Samaritan's Purse built a bigger unit there at Elwa, partnering with SIM, and we were moving into that new unit. So it was a very busy first few days of transitioning into that new unit and I was the medical director of that unit. And it was Wednesday morning, the 23rd, that I woke up just not feeling good. It was there was nothing specific, it was just kind of a vague, my stomach was a little upset, I felt kind of warm, and I chose to stay home that morning. I didn't think I had Ebola. I was just going to ask you, was that going through your head, were you thinking, oh, is this Ebola, or was it more like, oh, I just not, I'm not feeling well? The question, that question definitely went through my head, that's why I stayed home. I thought the answer to that question was no, I don't have Ebola. but. I wasn't naive enough to think that it was totally impossible. I'd been working in the world's worst Ebola outbreak for seven weeks. And it was, people have said, oh, you were in denial. And maybe I, maybe there was some mental denial there. Wouldn't you want to be in denial? <laughs> Who wouldn't yeah, want to be in denial, right? The difference though is that I didn't act like I didn't have right. it. I acted right. as if I had it until we could prove that I didn't. Right. So I stayed home and I called my supervisor, the team leader, told him, hey, I don't feel great. I'm going to stay home this morning. I think it'll blow over by lunchtime. And by lunchtime, I had an increasing fever, and I was feeling worse. And so they sent three of my colleagues over to draw my blood and run a test for Ebola. So I made a decision that day to not call Amber. I had been calling her every day since she had gotten she got back home on Monday. And I called her on Monday. I called her on Tuesday. And then I didn't call her Wednesday because I didn't want to tell her that I was being tested for Ebola without an, without an answer, without a response. Right. So I waited until that test result came back Thursday morning, and then I called her and told her, hey, I'm sick, I have a fever, but my first test was negative. But it was gonna, we knew it would be three days before we could get a definitive test. That's just the way it works. That's interesting that the first one was negative. Is that common for a false negative? In, within the first 72 hours of illness, it is. It's some. Sometimes it's positive right away, but for a lot of people, the trigger for that test doesn't turn positive until up to seventy-two hours of illness. Wow. Wow. So then, so then you get the final test back. You find out that you have it, and I mean, this is one of those things. When somebody gets sick, usually nobody knows about. It. I mean, everybody. I mean, it's international, huge news, and everybody's talking about it. How much time was there between you finding out about it and then sort of everybody else finding out about it? Not a lot. Um, I think it was just a matter of an hour or two. Um, 
Kent called me as soon as he found out, and then he started calling his parents and siblings and people that are close to him. And it was, I mean, still that evening, it was already like leaking out on Facebook. And I sent an email to all of our prayer supporters telling them. And then it, on Sunday, it, it seemed like churches were announcing it. And so the news was spreading really fast, especially on Sunday. What was going through your head? I would imagine a million things. What's going through your head as, as you're finding this information out, knowing, I mean, having been there and knowing as a nurse how bad yeah. this disease can be, this virus can be? I was really scared. Um, yeah, I knew how bad it was. I knew how many people had already died of it and that it was just erupting in Liberia. I mean, just the week I was away, it was already multiplying so fast. They'd already grown out of a new Ebola unit they built, and I, it was bad news. <laughs> it's just bad news, yeah. so I was yeah. scared. What was going through your mind as you're... As you find this out, and I'm sure you're obviously quarantined, you're taking steps to address, what's going through your head? What are you thinking? I really experienced a tremendous amount of peace that week. You know, I did things like call my brother and said, Carrie, I need to have a conversation with you. I said, it's not not an easy conversation, but if I die, here are some things you need to know to help Amber deal with things. I said, she, this is all written down somewhere, it's in our will, but I don't know if she'll be thinking clearly if that happens, so here's, here's what needs to happen if I die. But even when I had conversations like that, it was very kind of matter of fact. And later on, as I got sicker and sicker, my anxiety level increased a lot. And, and I've even been told by some of my caregivers, there's a lot of my illness that I don't remember. There are a lot of details that are that I don't remember because I was so sick. Some of my caregivers have told me about how anxious I was at different times. So when I say that I would I felt a tremendous amount of peace, it wasn't it wasn't peace that prevented anxiety or fear. It was peace in spite of the anxiety and the fear that come along with with thinking you're going to die. And I think a lot of people in life, you know, you kind of, especially for Christians, it's like, oh, yeah, I have faith. I love God. And when things are going great, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, well, okay, God's over there and I'm over here. But I guess, I mean, you guys went to Liberia. You took the, you had already really acted out in so many ways on faith before. And then here you are sort of up, up against this test and you're living it out again. And I think that's what makes the story so much more interesting to people is how you and also Nancy Wrightball reacted to this and dealt with it. And when you heard that you were going to be going to the U.S. for treatment, and I don't know how, at that point, how coherent you were or how aware you were of that, how were you feeling about that? And how were, and how were you feeling about that as well? I was really relieved to be coming back to the United States, it, even if only because it meant even if I die, because I was still very sick at that point. There was It was still a real possibility that I might not survive. But I thought even if I die, at least at least I'll be close to my family. I'll be in physical proximity to them. And that was that was a relief to know that that maybe they'll be able to talk to me through a window or you know maybe I'll get to see their faces again before I die. 
um, but also the the hope that may, maybe I'll make it. You know, this is this is a positive opportunity. Yeah. Maybe I'll make it. And it was incredibly relieving because you were such a I don't I mean this in every the best way, but you were a burden to the team there because they were still running the Ebola unit, which was expanding beyond their capability and taking care of you and Nancy, and they just did not have the manpower yeah. to, to do to sustain that. Well, and it's not, I mean, and I don't I don't know the dynamics of this, but it's one of your own who's been working with oh, you, yeah. and you're two of your own who've been working with you and who you know, and I would imagine that takes, not that you don't put all your energy into other people, you don't know, but it takes a special kind of energy away from you, I would imagine, okay. when that's happening, and takes your attention probably off of other things, and which is natural. I mean, you want to help the people who are closest to you and who you who you've worked with. So when he when you found out he was coming back, I mean there there was a big contro- well not I don't know if there was a big controversy over, but you had people saying publicly. I mean, and I have the Do- the Donald Trump tweet in front of me here that you know I mean he ended it with you know it's great these people are great for helping, um, but but they must suffer the consequences, which which was a really odd wording. And I remember th- we did a story on it at the time, and I remember thinking. This is odd. this is an odd thing to say, um, but knowing that that sort of thing was going on and that there was debate over that, looking back on it now, I mean, how do you feel about that that sort of debate? I I never took those things too personally. Well, it's fear, right? I mean, that that to me is fear. I'm not asking you to respond to now presidential candidate Donald Trump, but but you know i think that his was the most vocal at the time you know you know he he put that out there and a lot of people were like well yeah that's true we should, what if it spreads you know what if but it, but it didn't obviously and you guys might not have been i mean do you think that you would have survived had you not come back to the us i i really don't think i would have it i might have you know the team there were doing their best to take care of me but i i'm not sure that I would have made it. Cause the the thing that changed in my care when I got to Emory was that they were able to do some laboratory testing, which was just impossible in Liberia. And so they could find out that my electrolytes were really out of balance, and then they could replace them appropriately. And my doctors in Liberia had been able to assume that my electrolytes were out of balance, but they couldn't know how, they had no way to know how far or how much to to supplement me with potassium, other things like that. And the, the biggest experiential difference for me was having a nurse at my bedside 24 hours a day. That also was an impossibility in Liberia. But at Emory, because of the suits and the technology available to them, a nurse could be at my side 24 hours a day. And that that did a huge, that was a huge relief to my anxiety just to know that I wasn't alone and there yeah. was somebody there to help me. It's just funny how we react sometimes to fear because, you know, I think that goes through people's minds. Well, what if it spreads? You know, what if we don't handle it right? I mean, you had the guy in New York here too who – and that one was kind of crazy because I think the, like, the last place in the world you want anybody with Ebola is in New York City when they've been bowling and going around the city, you know. But the other thing is that Ebola is pretty hard to catch, right? I mean – so So we saw all of that fear – in, in public statements from people and the way that the general public responded in a lot of places, some of the policies that were put in place that were a reaction out of fear. But if we look back on that, 
Craig Spencer went bowling. He wrote, took a cab, he right. took a subway, and he was following the protocol, the guidelines set out by Doctors Without Borders. And if we look back on it, it worked. Right. Those protocols were appropriate, and no one else was exposed. And it's understandable that there's this reaction out of fear when we don't understand something, when, when we don't have experience with it ourselves. And, and that's natural, but I hope we can look back on it and say, you know what, the science was right. Right. And, and maybe we don't have to respond that way going forward. No, I think that's a good point. Because, I, I mean, everybody who lived in New York City at the time was sort of like, right? I mean, it's like, um, okay, is this going to spread now? You know, and, and that's the fear that people had. But I think that's a really good point. You look back at it now. And I think, too, you know, having having sort of been through that yourself, I mean, you were somebody who was dealing hands-on with people. If anybody was going to get sick, it was going to be people who were dealing hands-on with those who were sick um, as a result of Ebola. Um and now Nancy Reitball is back over in Liberia. Yeah. And I plan to talk with her about that soon. I just think that that's really interesting and, and fascinating. Would you, would you ever go back? Is that something that... We went back to visit just last month for oh, a wow. short visit. Um, ultimately, that is the kind of life we want to get back to, whether it's in Liberia or, or somewhere else. So, yeah, that, that hasn't changed our desire and our willingness to, to do that kind of work, to live in that kind of place. And I'm really proud of Nancy and David for the work that they're continuing to do in Liberia. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and now you guys are doing a, a really interesting form of work here in the U.S. You have a book out called For Life. Tell me about the book. What motivated you guys to, to write it? Really, we um, had heard from so many people who were encouraged or inspired by or intrigued by our story and that it had meant something to them and we wanted to share it in more detail and hopefully to a, a bigger audience um, really just to tell the story and it's factual and it's <laughs> dramatic and it's all real life um, so we welcomed that opportunity we also want want it to be an encouragement to people to think beyond themselves and to think um, challenge them to to be aware and to I guess have some place in their heart for the, the foreigner the outsider and um, we hope that it will be an opportunity for us to raise awareness that still the outbreak is ongoing in West Africa and there are new cases, dozens of new cases every week still. And so it's, you don't hear about it a lot, but it is, it's still happening and I think people need to know that and there's still things that you can do to help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And not forgetting, you know, we were talking before we started recording about how the media, and I say this as somebody who works in the media, sort of picks the things that we're going to focus on, and, mm -hmm. and that's sort of what happens, right? And, and some of these things get lost under the radar when you don't have Americans coming back sick anymore to be treated in the U.S. People aren't talking about it as much because it's not here, but it is still happening. What, ha what has this all taught you guys, um, and maybe, maybe it hasn't taught you new lessons, maybe it's just reaffirmed them, but about God and about faith and, and just understanding purpose for things in life 
it has probably raised more questions than it has given answers. But there's a lesson I learned a long time ago, 10 or 12 years ago, in a summer experience in East Africa. I learned that God will give us what we need to be faithful to him. And I always kind of thought of that in terms of things and and opportunities and relationships and whatever you need to do the task God has placed before you. But being going through this experience, facing my own death, when I was laying in my bed in Liberia thinking that this could be my last breath, I don't know if I'm going to live any longer, a scripture kept coming back to my mind. In fact, it was a song that I played, a children's song that I played on my computer that said, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, 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 nothing. And in that moment, that was, that was what I needed to be faithful to God, even if it was just with my will, my desire to be faithful, to know that whether I live or die, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And, and that was profound to me. It wasn't, it wasn't a cure that I needed. It wasn't having somebody beside me 24 hours a day that I needed to be faithful to God. It was the assurance that I was secure in his love. It's amazing to think that you could get the, the, a reminder like that from God in the middle of chaos, right, and suffering and, you know, being distracted by all of that pain and all of that sickness. And to have that reminder, that's really, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, more people need to hear that. And, and one of the things about your message when you got out of the hospital, your first public message, I remember we covered it. And a lot of people on staff were like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Just like the fact that you came out there and you, I mean, talked about God so openly um, it, obviously knowing the venue was going to be everybody on almost every network carried that uh, did a lot of thought and I want to, then I want to ask you about what you've learned too. I don't want to forget about asking you, but did a, what went into crafting that statement and how much time did you spend? I mean, what, because I just thought it was such an interesting statement to make. I worked on it for a couple of days before I was released from the hospital and I had other people kind of, you know, proofread my the statement that I had written and stuff. But I wanted to be sure that I thanked all of the people involved in my care, that I gave credit to God because I believe He He brought me through it. Um, he used a lot of incredible people to do it, and and the people that took care of me, the people that made my evacuation possible, the people who had been working for a decade on this treatment for this one strain of Ebola. And I believe God used all of that. And I wanted to give him the credit to acknowledge that at the beginning of my illness, I said, I want to be faithful. And when I recovered, I still wanted to be faithful. And I wanted, the third thing I wanted to do was be sure I pointed people's attention back to West Africa. Because at that time, the outbreak was still raging on. The numbers were getting bigger. You know, August and September were the worst months in Liberia. Now, here we are a year later, and the outbreak is still going on. And so you're asking me about my first statement when I left the hospital, but I want to be sure to take this opportunity to remind everybody who listens to your program that the outbreak's not over. 
there are 20 to 30 new cases a week being diagnosed in Sierra Leone and Guinea. Liberia recently had a resurgence. Fortunately, there were only six cases, but they're now on the countdown again to, to Ebola-free status. So as many opportunities as we get, that's, that's part of the message we want to, to speak, is to remind people of what our neighbors on the other side of the ocean are still suffering. Yeah, still dealing with and I think that, again that's the thing that do, that gets lost, right? It gets lost, people don't people don't know and they're not aware. So just, you know, to ask you what what have you learned about God through this? What has been the lesson that you've taken away? Well, I appreciate it, Kent saying that I think we've we've been asking more questions than we have answers to cuz we have we've really wrestled through things about how does God work and suffering and life is not fair. I've been hearing that all my life, but <laughs> to learn it again as an adult is it's tough. Life's just not fair. And I, I think um, Ken's doctors had warned me about having survive, survivor syndrome, being the one who made it when so many haven't. And I think that's hit both of us because I'm the one with my husband and so many others don't. So we have we still have a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. But we um we are choosing to keep our faith in the Lord because he's been so faithful to us and it's choice every day. Yeah. Well, and isn't it so much easier too when you can explain something away and I, you know not diminishing it up, but when something happens like a shooting or something awful, and you could say, well, that was that person's free will. They they chose to do that, right? They they made that decision. But when you deal with things that are that are evil that happen or that are bad or, or awful that happen, like a disease or something, it's a lot harder, I think, sometimes um, for people to navigate that sort of pain and that sort of suffering. And why does God allow that? And how does it happen? So it's complicated. It really is. And you guys have been in the middle of that, I think, on an, on an international sort of stage that maybe you wouldn't have cho- chosen to be in the middle of it that God, for whatever reason, put you in the middle of, which is interesting. And uh, well, are there any final thoughts or anything you'd want to share that maybe we haven't talked about? I'd love to give people a chance to do that because sometimes you do an interview and it's like, oh, well, we didn't get to say what we wanted to say. Anything else? I'd really like to say thank you to the people that, that prayed for us, that sent us messages of encouragement and support through not only through my illness but so many people who have continued to pray for us and and reach out to us in kind ways Uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of your listeners who are in that group I just want to say thank you genuinely sincerely want to express our gratitude to people for for walking with us through that difficult experience and still today Absolutely. And we'll make sure we link out to Called for Life and make sure people get a chance to check the book out. Thank you, Billy. No problem. Thank you guys for coming on. Thanks for having us. Church Bowl.